0: Welcome to this edition of Talking HR with Lori and Lisa. Where, as always, our goal is to give you a real look at today's HR world through the sharing of experiences, knowledge, and inspiring people practices. I'm your host, Lori
1: Rilkoff. I'm Laurie's co-host, Lisa Fuller. Recently, I had the wonderful opportunity and privilege to hear Hamza Khan speak. And I was so captivated by what he had to say about the world of work today and for the future that I asked him if he'd be a guest on our podcast. And we're very grateful that he said yes and is with us today. Hamza is a best selling author, award winning entrepreneur, and world renowned keynote speaker whose TED talk, TEDx talk, Stop Managing, Start Leading, has been viewed over 2 million times. Hamza has spoken on various global stages, from the World Youth Forum to TEDx, and works with clients such as Microsoft, PepsiCo, LinkedIn, Deloitte, Salesforce, and hundreds of others. He has studied and practiced human centric leadership for over 15 years. Welcome, Hamza.
2: Wow, Lisa, what an introduction. Thank you for having me. And hello, Lori. Such a pleasure to be with both of you. This uh, This is really special. I'm a fan of the podcast. I'm a fan of what the two of you have been doing in terms of curating conversations that are timely and relevant for this community, but even beyond this community, just the world of work. It's just so cool to be here.
1: Well, thanks for, for being here. Now, Hamza, I, I've had the pleasure of listening to you twice now um, and wow. love the engaging conversations we've had. But I know you were born, I think, in New York and raised in Toronto <laughs> yes. um, and started your career in post-secondary education. And then now you're an entrepreneur um, as well. So maybe mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about your background and your journey to becoming an author, researcher, and speaker.
0: Wow.
2: Okay, for sure. And and I'd love to acknowledge the the bit about New York there. So uh, last August, my wife and I relocated to New York, and we we spend our time mostly in New York, but we divide it equally between Toronto, New York, and other parts of the, the GTA. But be, because we're both uh, workshop facilitators, keynote speakers, um, and academics, we're, we're we're traveling the world. But it, it's just so surreal to think that we've been here for eight months in New York. I'm currently recording this from my apartment in New York. And when my wife said that to me, I was stunned. I was like, whoa, the New York Minute is a real thing. It feels like it's been all of eight minutes, but somehow we've been here for eight months and it's absolutely surreal. And I think about I think about this concept known as Fracy's Law. It's a productivity principle that basically explains that time has a subjective dimension that varies according to the personal interest you have in the thing that you were doing. And in the world of work if you like what you're doing then let's say an hour is what you're spending on that that hour will pass by very quickly but if you don't like what you're doing if you're not engaged and most people aren't engaged at work then that same unit of time that one hour feels like an eternity and so you know bailey and i my wife and i we've been so so fortunate and so privileged to be here to be at this stage in our careers in a place that gives us so much joy and animation that it feels like it's been all of eight minutes Okay uh, then to, to, to get back to the, the, the journey here i i started my career wow it's surreal that we're recording this in march early march of 2023 well in a couple of days uh, i will be celebrating my 10 year anniversary of serving as a keynote speaker among many other things and i began this journey by speaking about personal branding and marketing and technology innovation and now, this event that I'm going to speak at uh, on March 14th, it'll be of a year to date. I'll be speaking about human centric leadership and community care. It's actually surreal to think about just that journey to go from marketing, communication, personal branding, all the way to human centric leadership and community care. And I've been thinking a lot about what that through line is over the past decade and some change. And I think I finally got it recently. I've been engaging in some some autobiographical pra- autobiographical practices to help uh, communicate my value proposition on my website and and just in conversations like this. And so what I think the through line is, Lisa and Laurie, it's this, it's helping people thrive through periods of change. I think that's what binds everything that I do together. And it's what I did when I first started my career at the University of Toronto Scarborough working in student affairs, helping you hel- helping uh, students make the transition from college through post-secondary to their jobs. And I did the same thing at Ryerson University, which is now Toronto Metropolitan University. I then moved out of the Canadian post-secondary education space and started my first company, Splash Effect, which was a digital marketing consultancy and communication consultancy that primarily worked with the education space, but then branched out to government, healthcare, and non-profit. for And then that put the wind in our sails to start our next company, the, the company that currently my wife and I run together, Skills Camp, a soft skills development company. And we work with organizations of all shapes and sizes around the world And I took some time away from Skills Camp during its growth to then really close the loop on that journey that I started in the Canadian post-secondary education space by working at a startup known as Student Life Network, which is the largest community of students uh, in high school, post-secondary, and beyond in Canada. And we were able to do some pretty remarkable things in terms of creating an ecosystem of tools and resources to help them facilitate that transition um, autonomously. Now... Here we are in 2023, and I look back at this arc, and I, I wonder where I am and, and what I'm doing now. And I feel comfortable saying that I've become obsessed with the problem that most people aren't thriving in the future of work. And, and I say the future of work, uh, it's 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 happening now. It's here. It's It's not happening tomorrow. It's happening today. We are in the future of work. And the world and the world of work specifically is changing faster than anyone can reasonably keep up with. So I'm obsessed, I wake up every single day with the question in mind, how do I help people thrive in this fast approaching um, current future of work, the now future of work, if you will.
0: So Hamza, what would you say are the primary shifts that are occurring in in our work environments today?
2: Mm, Wow, we could do a whole other podcast or two on just that alone. Uh, I have to rely on quite a bit of uh, acronyms to, to help me wrap my head around the, the, the speed at which and, and the scale to which the world work is shifting and changing. The three acronyms that I rely on quite a bit are ADAPT, A-D-A-P-T, uh, BANI, B-A-N-I, and VUCA, V-U-C-A. So ADAPT was coined by PwC, PricewaterhouseCoopers. Uh, it stands for Asymmetry, Disruption, Aging Systems, Polarization, and Trust Diminishment as undeniable characteristics of our ever-changing world. And that last bit over there on T, the trust diminishment, is top of mind for me today. I was reading um, Edelman's Trust Barometer Report, which they just published, I think, a couple of weeks ago, which is showing that trust in all of our institutions is declining precipitously, but especially within government. I think that's obvious to anybody that has been following politics since, I think, 2016, and certainly during the pandemic. Um, you know, trust in all of our institutions, whether they're businesses, NGOs, the media, but especially government is declining. And I think this is symptomatic of what I said uh, in the earlier question, in response to the earlier question, which is people just aren't engaged. I mean, people are, are getting caught up in cycles of stress that are proving counterproductive for for all parties involved. So that was ADAPT. Then we go into Bonnie, which uh, is, is popular in Europe, brittle, anxious, nonlinear, and incomprehensible as undeniable characteristics of our ever-changing world. And my favorite is VUCA, V U C A, which I think uh, Lisa heard me make this joke a couple of times before. It sounds like a celebrity baby name, and it also sounds really mm-hmm. cute, like a like a like a Paw Patrol <laughs> member name. <laughs> Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity. So, you know, th- those are the big changes that are happening, and and how does it play out? Like during times of change, especially during a crisis, people experience psychological stress, and and I, I love how Marley talked about this a couple of episodes ago. Um, She referenced the amygdala hijack people enter into states of fight, flight, freeze, or sometimes even fawn. And stressed leaders, like any stressed person, tend to behave more insularly and conservatively. And in the world of work, that plays out in very counterproductive ways that can play out in the uh, development of blinders, which used to be strategic frames, the set of assumptions That determine how people view the organization it could turn into routines which used to be processes essentially the way things are done now based on the way things were previously done it could turn into shackles which previously were relationships the ties to employees customers suppliers distributors stakeholders whatever the case may be and uh lastly it could turn into dogmas which are the stubborn counterpart to values essentially what a company rewards tolerates and punishes and when these things, uh, devolve into their stubborn counterparts, that's when things become shaky and we're seeing specific shifts. So I have talked about this at a, a sort of high level in terms of the acronyms, adapt, Bonnie VUCA, and I described the hallmarks of active inertia, but in terms of specific manifestations in recent history for what these shifts are, are, are doing, we see this happening in the form of the great resignation. Uh, we see this happening in the form of quiet quitting, um, uh, ep- the epidemic of stress and burnout. And, uh, i mean there's 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 so, there's so many different directions we can go in over here but the, but those are just some of the top level assessments of of the shifts that are happening in the world of work
1: that's that's incredible and as you said i think we could talk for talk for hours on many of those topics so knowing knowing that knowing how things have shifted just even over the past few years um in in the world today how how can individuals and leaders and organizations, what do we need to do to sort of shift to surviving, to being, to being able to thrive in a world that we need to adapt to?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, yeah, no, it's a great question. And, and this is certainly the focus of my current speaking and research. And I think it's all going to coalesce into another book at some point. Uh, I've just been collecting notes over the last five years for this next project. Um, what does it mean to survive and, and what does survival look like? And it's it's one of the things that that I've uncovered is that people who are disempowered and marginalized in the workplace, uh, people who are experiencing any modicum of oppression in the workplace, and that's most employees by objective measures. Gallup, for instance, found that 85% of workers are disengaged or actively disengaged at work. And that's terrifying when you think about it. These employees are constantly paying uh, in in many ways. And speaking of acronyms, one that I'm currently working on right now is METHM, M-E-T-H-M. It's it's a work in progress. It's not the final product. But (laughs) uh, people people who are disengaged at work tend to spend more money on average. Uh, They tend to experience higher levels of exhaustion. They tend to expend uh, needlessly more time. They experience more hassle. And in the worst case scenarios, I would say that they also experience menace, the receiving end of uh, maladaptive leadership that trickles downstream and makes their work and life uh, by for that matter, uh, miserable. and and you know, the, the survival then affects the quality of life, the health, the prosperity, and taken to the nth degree for employees, it results in illness, injury, or worst fatality. And so I would conclude that the modern workplace in many ways is working against our best interests as employees. So to get out of that survival mode, that's going to require a full court press. It's going to have to start with leadership, changing their paradigms, fundamentally changing their paradigms about work. Um, We're going to have to just cast out the 20th century management playbook that has guided us thus far. Of course, we don't want to be reckless about it. We want to extract the wisdom Um, Specifically, the wisdom around how to lead during times of crisis and change and how to practice an operational and functional version of what is known in the literature as dominance leadership, but then how to respectfully situate that within a more holistic, human centric and transformational approach, the prestige, the the opposite of, of the dominant style of leadership. So it has to start with leadership changing their paradigm, and then it has to then go into the level of culture, changing what we reward, tolerate, and punish in an organization. And that ultimately will happen once the leaders put the needs of the employees before any other needs in the organization. And that sounds easy to do, but in practice it could be very difficult because in for most organizations, I imagine it would involve an overhaul of their very business model to focus on employee engagement, to focus on employee well-being and then everything else second, especially profits and stake and, and, and shareholders.
0: Yeah you know, there's been a lot of shakeup recently um, with the uh, the tech companies. Mm-hmm. Uh, that we've been hearing about. And you know, they were always viewed as being these role models for these very open, innovative, creative workplaces right. What do you think about what's happening there?
2: I'm seeing with these tech companies now something really fascinating. Uh, I think it was I think it was Marley actually, and I really enjoyed that episode where she talked about workplaces being systems. And it immediately triggered a, Memory of of a model that I use quite a bit, the Katz and Kahn Open Systems Model. Lori, Lisa, have you heard about this?
1: No, I don't think I have.
2: Okay, yeah, I think you're really gonna you're really gonna dig this, and I hope I hope the listeners appreciate this as well. So this is not uh, Kahn K A N, and this is my German brother from another mother K A H N. I think it was 1966 when they published the Open Systems Model. Quite simply. Open systems are thriving systems, and this could be an open mindset, this could be a family, this could be an organization. But for the sake of this podcast, let's talk about companies. Companies that behave like open systems are just that, they're open, they're constantly ingesting information from their external environment, they're learning about their customer, they're learning about shifts in the zeitgeist, they're anticipating the future. Then they're taking that information and and, and putting it into the nucleus of the organization and making decisions based on the realities around them. As a result, the inside of the organization is at the very least synchronized with the rate of change on the outside of the organization. And in the best case scenario, it's exceeding the rate of change on the outside of the organization. And in that way, an open system is able to change long before change is required. Closed systems, on the other hand, are doing the exact opposite. They're not receiving information from the outside, and the little information that they do have on the inside is not being meaningfully used. And as a result, the nucleus of the company, the nucleus of that organization decays, and as a whole, the organization teeters toward failure. So to adapt and then thrive in the shifting future of work, openness and change friendliness as a value have to be operationalized and maximized at all levels, beginning with leadership. And like I said, this is a lot more challenging than it sounds. It requires considerable transparency, openness, understanding, compassion, and humility. Things that can't be easily distilled down into binary code. Things that can't be reduced down to ones and zeros. Things that chat GPT only knows how to do if they know how to do because human beings have programmed them.
1: So as leaders, if I'm thinking, um, you know, really trying to become... Uh, more open-minded, or really having a a change-friendly mindset, which I do believe is needed in today's environments. What, how do I equip myself to provide that type of leadership? Because um, I have to have that as an individual as well, right?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, what needs to happen sooner than later? And and I think we got the the call to action in 2019 when Mark Benioff of Salesforce stood before his contemporaries at the Business Roundtable Forum and said, we need a reinvented system that transcends shareholder value. We need a reinvented system focused on employees, customers, communities, and the planet. And that last piece over there, the planet, and I would just summarize all of the things that preceded it into people, people and planet as the North Star for every organization in the world. That's what we need to focus on. Our systems need to reflect the values of people and the assumption that we're going to live harmoniously with the planet, not the other way around. Unfortunately, most of the world of work right now is the values of larger systems, specifically leaders that are imposed onto the people. And that's where a a lot of the the tension that is manifesting in counterproductive workplace behavior comes from because it results for employees in a lack of fairness, uh, insufficient values, a lack of community, unsustainable workloads, insufficient rewards, and a lack of control. So the first thing that needs to happen is a mindset shift, where the purpose of organizations need to be focused on the values of the people it serves and the needs of the planet first. Then when we start making decisions about how to serve people and by extension, the planet, the change friendly mindset that I've described here becomes automatic, because of how dynamic human systems are, they're constantly changing. And so it follows that, if you are putting people first, if you're putting planet first, and you're truly doing that, then you are changing at the speed at which people on the planet are changing. But if I had to lock in on a single action, I would suggest the following map out a full spectrum of possibilities before uh, or, or that, that may result from an organization's decision. And this is fascinating to me because this is such a simple thing that you can do. Instead of doing a post mortem after something has failed, do a pre mortem. And reverse engineer the circumstances which could result in failure, but at the same time, also imagine up wild success. And what's likely to happen is somewhere in between both of those extremes, somewhere between wild success and uh, complete failure is the likely scenario, which I think is what's playing out right now. And hopefully, it's moving closer and closer towards the vision for wild success. So, that's one of many ways that you can operationalize this idea of a change friendly mindset.
0: So you touched upon um, briefly there about values. Mm-hmm. Um, are there any specific values that you feel are important in leadership?
2: Ooh, so many. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I I wrote about in my most recent book, Leadership Reinvented, I wrote about four specific values that compose what what I describe as the, the, the perfect uh, array of change-friendly leadership attributes and they were namely servitude, innovation, diversity, and empathy. Uh, Operationalized and maximized, those values result in a leader adopting a completely open mindset within an organization, and um, it it then automatically creates the open system that is required for the organization to cross the chasm of time. But in addition to that, recently I've been thinking a lot about uh, some of the values that I mentioned earlier. I've been thinking about the value of transparency, uh, openness, understanding, uh, compassion, and humility as well. Honestly, and any any value that is is focused on improving another person's experience or maximizing value for them is critical here. So uh, I've, I've been fascinated with this model um, that I learned about recently, the decor of personality traits. Lisa Laurie, have you heard about this?
0: No, but no. I want to hear more.
2: The decor person. Okay. <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. Scott Barry Kaufman was the lead researcher on this, and uh, him and his team attempted to understand what was what was the what, what was the equivalent of the Big Five personality traits, the Ocean traits: openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. Is there a similarly uh, identifiable set of uh, attributes or values or subclinical traits? that bind together socially aversive behavior. And what they found is that the dark triad of personality traits, narcissism, Machiavellianism, uh, psychopathy, they fit into this model. Other socially aversive traits such as sadism uh, fall into this model. And the model is known as the decor of personality traits. And the definition is really peculiar. And it's taken me a while to really process and understand what this means for modern leaders. But I'll attempt to break it down. The decor of personality traits is... um, the the tendency to maximize individual utility while accepting, neglecting, or provoking disutility for others. So, in other words, it's looking after your needs first while either um, creating a zero-sum situation for somebody else by depriving them of their needs, or accepting that they're losing their needs, or neglecting that they're losing their needs. And if if you if you you know, really meditate on that idea. And then you invert it. What you get are all of the positive traits that we've been talking about in this episode, servitude, innovation, diversity, empathy, transparency, humility, openness, uh, compassion, so on and so forth. any number of human skills, any number of soft skills, they're all focused on improving and maximizing utility for others. And if done correctly, the byproduct is improved utility for yourself and that's the counter seemingly counterproductive shift that leaders and organizations need to make by helping other people you can get everything that you
1: want which is really that human centered leadership approach which is so so valuable that we understand people we bring our whole selves to work you know we don't we don't just not uh bring what's happening in our life and our families in our day to day work, it's impossible. So I love that you're talking about how do we support people being human.
2: And it's its so meaningful to me that uh, two seasoned HR professionals such as yourselves and thought leaders in the space are validating that because sometimes this work feels very lonely and sometimes it can cause a lot of cognitive dissonance because I i question all of the things that I read. I'm very critical of the things that I read and I study. And sometimes these solutions feel too simple. They feel too mm-hmm. pedestrian almost. And I, I have to... Take extended periods of time away from this material and really just question my reality and think, wow, if the solution is this simple, just treat people better, you know, lead with love, practice compassion, and be good to your neighbor. Why, why, why is why does the norm seem to be the opposite? And that's where some of the earlier conversations that we had about change and stress and and crisis come into play because I truly believe that most people are well intentioned. I always assume ignorance before malevolence. And and yes, there are bad actors, but in terms of the prevalence in the general population, it's less than 10%, according to most reports, less than 10% are truly narcissistic, Machiavellianism, psychopathic. But for the most part, you have leaders like myself who had the best of intentions, but were caught up in cycles of fear and cycles of stress and didn't know how to react appropriately during times of change. And as a result, we either accepted, neglected, or inadvertently provoked disutility to others. Mm-hmm. So... I'm reminded of a quote by Bill Mollison, the inventor of a concept known as permaculture, which is such a cool concept that I've been looking up. And it seems to be the opposite of last year's word of the year. I think you can both enjoy this. Lisa, Laurie, the the word of the year for 2022 was permacrisis. (laughs) We're living in a time of permacrisis. And permaculture is very much the opposite. It's like, how do we create a, a somehow closed open system, an ecosystem that works in agriculture and and solves all of your needs within a, a finite amount of systems but i think that's a really brilliant concept that can be expanded out to organizations and uh, his his quote was as follows he said though the problems of the world seem increasingly complex its solutions remain embarrassingly simple and so i take great comfort in that quote as well as your acknowledgement of everything that i'm saying here um it means a lot that that you think that this information that these ideas are are salient and they're valuable mm-hmm even though they might seem embarrassingly simple.
1: And, and you have a concept that I just want to explore as well with you, Hamza. And it is, it, it's incredibly simple, um, mm-hmm. but I think incredibly meaningful. And and it's it's about leave an empty chair.
0: Ooh. Can
1: you share that for our listeners?
2: You know, this, this has come up enough times where I've actually thought about Spinning this off into another project, um, it seems to really stand out to people. And I'm so glad that it stood out to you, Lisa. I thought about it very recently, actually. So my wife and I, we were in uh, New York and we were watching the Super Bowl. We, we decided to have an, an American night, you know, we, <laughs> we, 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 we made some fancy nachos, uh, you know, we had some drinks and we sat down and we participated in the great tradition of watching the Super Bowl. And uh, it was just so cool to see Rihanna performing. And that was a huge moment for me because I wrote about the circumstances that led to her declining the Super Bowl uh, performance in 2016. And if, if you remember, this is the year when Colin Kaepernick famously took a knee during the national anthem as a protest against the, um, the, 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 the mistreatment of unarmed black men in the country. There was a lot going on in terms of uh, mm-hmm. uh, um, uh, uh, abuse within the police system and, and racial discrimination and... Um, I remember when that movement happened. Started with Colin Kaepernick and some of his his teammates, and then it quickly spread to the world of media, entertainment, and then sure enough, the world started tuning in. And that year, 2016, Rihanna and Jay Z were offered the chance to perform at the Super Bowl, and they both declined. So then to see then uh, several years later for her to perform there again, that was really really cool for me because it meant that the work happened within the NFL. Um, and, and the work was staffing those chairs appropriately. Because what happened, Lisa and Lori, is in 2016, when Colin Kaepernick took the knee, Roger Goodell, the commissioner of the NFL, looked around his executive board and said, what's going on? How do we respond to this? Except at the time, no one at that table had the lived experience to identify with what Colin Kaepernick was expressing. And so nobody saw that coming. Nobody knew how to react appropriately. In fact, Roger Goodell did the opposite of what he should have done and uh, criticized in the harshest possible terms uh, Colin Kaepernick's behavior. And then the ratings started to decline of the NFL. The A-list celebrity started to decline. Um, the performances for the Super Bowl uh, sponsors began pulling out. Uh, more protests began to ensue and ensued. And within a couple of years, Roger Goodell had a, had a, an awakening and said, okay, we, we were absolutely wrong. Black lives do matter. We were wrong to criticize Colin Kaepernick. How do we fix this? So this is a long way of setting up what this ac- exercise is. The next time you have a meeting in an organization, leave an empty chair. If you're having a meeting physically, leave an empty chair. Or if you're having a meeting virtually, leave an empty square, uh, which rhymes. I should find a, mm-hmm. a, a more, more <laughs> clever way to say that. Yeah. And then go around the room and ask people who's not here. Who's not in the meeting? Which person, what intersectionalities, what roles and responsibilities, what parts of the value chain of the organization are not in the meeting? And I think it's especially important to ask this question when you're making decisions about a group that's not inside of the room. What's that saying? Nothing about us without us. And so what Roger Goodell did is realize that most of the players in the the NFL are Black, most of our viewers or a significant chunk of our viewers also identify as black, but there's no black decision makers at the table. So instead of leaving an empty chair, he said, let's fill this right now. And then brought on multiple black partners into the NFL decision-making process. One of which is actually Jay-Z who uh, owns the label that Rihanna assigned to. And so what has happened over the last five years is you can see the programming of these um, uh, halftime shows, become more and more relevant to the culture but it goes beyond just the halftime show. The NFL has also made perhaps the largest amounts of contributions to black communities uh to restorative justice um, towards uh anti-black racism uh, causes uh more than the NH- more than the NHL, MLB um combined I believe. So this is this is just that it's it's leaving an empty chair leaving an empty square and asking who's not here because diversity of people tends to correlate with diversity of backgrounds experiences and perspectives and that's essentially what we need that is the business case to be gained from diversity of people so often the conversation about diversity gets hung up on diversity of gender and sexuality but uh, you know we we need a gender sexuality race and and ethnicity but we have to move beyond that and think about the the true upside of diverse people i want my organizations to be as diverse as possible because the people of the world are so diverse and if we have those perspectives represented on the inside of the company then we'll be able to anticipate and respond to changes well before they happened and this idea is echoed at the highest possible levels i mean one of the the fortune 10 companies in the world microsoft satya nadella their ceo uh, who performed a hard reset on the company's culture and Microsoft is also one of the Fortune 100's best places to work at in terms of workplace culture and leadership. Said in a very recent Microsoft DNI report that we simply cannot succeed in our business without diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Um, if we want, if 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 we want to serve the world on the, I'm paraphrasing here. If we want to serve the world on the outside, we have to represent it inside of the company. So again, that's that that that's key here. Ask who's not here.
0: Well, I do hope you. Uh, if- continue working on that concept because i think it's very timely and it's fascinating to use that as a model mm-hmm. um, are there other areas of future research that you have planned
2: Ooh, <laughs> so many uh my mind is racing over here but top of mind for me is um the inefficacy of self-care uh the first book that i wrote was the burnout gamble uh, a guide to beating burnout by by um uh, building resilience. And, and a big part of that was self-care. And I don't want to dismiss the importance of self-care. I practice self-care on the, on a daily basis. I, I think that it's really important that people have routines and practices that optimize their personal, uh, that, that that optimize their physical energy, mental energy, spiritual energy, emotional energy. But in the context of work, and when we're talking about building bulwarks and buttresses against burnout that accounts for less than 20% of the total variance in engagement scores most of the reason why people are disengaged at work most of the re- the, the, the the drivers for why people are disengaged at work uh, upwards of 70% rest within the purview of leaders so i say the inefficacy of self care to st- to provoke a little bit, to create a reaction, but we have to look beyond self-care measures and individual interventions towards system-level solutions for what is clearly system-level problem. Burnout, yes, is experienced by the individual, but its primary drivers are system-level. So that's one area of focus for me. Another area of focus for me is the prevalence of dark triad and toxic triangle and decor personality traits in the general population. There's not a lot of research done about how... It, the, the, the problem I'm, the question I'm trying to answer is this do people become more um, socially adverse as leaders or are leaders selecting potential leaders who already have these traits if I'm making sense over there? So I'm trying to figure out to what extent do these traits uh, are they latent in in, in the average population? And I'm also now focused on rehumanizing workplaces. Uh, we talked about that throughout this podcast, putting the needs of people first. And then an idea that I'm really excited about, and I'm curious to know your thoughts on this, Lori and Lisa. I think that I know that the uh, emotion that has governed the evolution and development of the modern workforce throughout most of history has been fear, fear of uh, resource loss primarily. <laughs> And now we see that the system is failing. In, in, by by every measure, uh, the system is failing. Uh, you can see this in the Edelman Trust, Trust Report. You can see this in growing levels of uh, income inequality. You can see this in degradation to the environment, so on and so forth. The system is working, but it's not working for everybody. It's working for a small group of people. So the wild idea that I have is this, and we're talking about it in 2023, but I wonder if it's a little too early and we're, we might have to circle back in a couple of years, but I do believe that there is a role... For love in the workplace, and <laughs> that's a, that's a terrible thing to say on an HR podcast. So I want to be very clear: I'm not. I'm talking about uh, uh, non-romantic love. <laughs> uh, I'm talking about nurturing the spiritual development in other people. I'm talking about helping other people truly adro- adopt a, a servant leadership mindset and help people get what they want. Move move into cycles of collaboration, participation, co-creation. Give people a sense of place, belonging, shared meaning create narratives of interbeing instead of narratives of separation, value diversity, optimize the whole collective benefits. I mean that's some of the top level ideas I have for what love could look like in the workplace. And I say this because it's Elizabeth Kubler-Ross who said that the opposite of fear is love. Um, and this is an idea that recurs throughout cultures. Um, it, it's expressed by by different thought leaders, whether they're poets or, or songwriters or politicians and revolutionaries it might be time to give love a chance because fear seems to have run its course.
0: Wow. That's a a great quote to end our podcast session. (laughs) (laughs) I
1: I love it. And, and I, I don't, I think it is needed. I think it's not only needed in workplaces. I think it's needed in the world today. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, When, when our world is going through so much um challenge and negativity and war and you know it it does sound so simple right Mm. that you know we we should just love one another and um and we know that there are good people in, in the world and we're all trying to do our best and do good things. And I I believe similar to you, Hamza, that, you know, you have to keep that optimism and positivity mm-hmm. and radiate that and try to inspire others to be their mm-hmm. best human self. Um, and I think if we're all working towards that goal. Um, but of course, we're all human as well. And we know mm-hmm. our we go back to the, and revert back to sometimes, you know, the fear and some of those behaviors that we don't demonstrate as well when we're not um our, our best selves or haven't had enough sleep or you know the, right. the stresses right. of life so I, I I think you'll be on our on our episodes in future talking about this great work that you're doing we're wow. thoroughly enjoyed having you
2: oh my goodness the, the pleasure was all mine thank you so much for for asking such thoughtful questions and and for listening to my <laughs> my my streams of consciousness from time to from time to time so thank you
1: we love it and how can our listeners get a hold of you hamza
2: sure i've I've simplified this for everybody you can just go to my website it's hamza khan.ca that's h-a-m-z-a or z-a for my fellow americans h-a-m-z-a-k-h-a-n.ca
0: thank you so much
2: this was so much fun thank you
0: thanks for being on